Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today, our guest is Catherine Zinn, the Chief Client Officer at Oric. Catherine's role is to ensure the firm is a steward of their clients' businesses. She listens to clients' views and concerns, responds to their needs, and articulates a shared understanding of priorities. Catherine, I've given our listeners some insight into your role and background. Can you expand on what I've said and give us a glimpse into your role at Oric? Sure, Nicole, and thank you for this opportunity to speak with your audience. At Oric, we do put the client first. And I will say that the role that I have was really architected and modeled after a role that we are starting to see emerging in the Fortune 1000 companies. And it's that role of the chief customer officer or chief client officer. And you see that role in maybe just over 10% of Fortune 1000. And the idea being that everything that we do whether you directly serve the client or you're in support of someone who does, should be acknowledging the client's interests and ultimately towards that goal of achieving a high degree of client satisfaction. We're going to talk later in the interview about changing market conditions and how that likely influenced your client service model. But before we get there, what personal strengths or habits do you have that have helped you be or allowed you to be successful in developing business? I sort of joke with my with my friends and colleagues that I'm a one trick pony in this way that I approach every person and every situation or I should say at least I I attempt to with this orientation is how can I be of service to of course it's not it's obvious when you're thinking of a client how can I help but every attorney that I work with every colleague every person in my network or our network as a firm more broadly I believe that if you approach every conversation that way, then Mm -hmm. you tend to get to good results for people and you also hopefully gain some friends along the way. So what does that look like? How would you talk to other people about having professional but warm approach in talking with clients, working with clients? So I guess I'll give you an example. Um, There are conversations that I have with clients that are, I'll just say more traditional, where you sit down and our chairman is often there or maybe someone else, or maybe it's just me, but we sit down and we have a conversation about how are we doing? And we ask a series of questions, they answer those questions. And that's a service oriented conversation. That's great and helpful. A lot of people do that. I will say, I believe the greatest value that I can provide is more than that. So what does that look like? I will often be sitting with a general counsel and she will share with me or I will ask what's keeping her busy these days. And she'll say, you know, I think it's time. It's time for me to serve on a public company board. I see that other women, I see that they're serving on a public company board and I'm interested in that. And I say, great. And we start talking about what her board bio should look like and the people that I think she should meet in order to help make that happen. And that would be a tangible example of, I would say, being of service to somebody in the moment and frankly, looking for ways to assist people in meeting their personal and professional objectives. And that's, in my mind, the single most important thing 
that any person, but specifically any attorney can do if he or she wants to build their practice and relationships. You're talking to them about something that is of interest, will build a reputation, but not specific to a matter or a customer service approach. It's something more than that. It is personal. Thank you for sharing that. Definitely something that others will want to emulate. Let's talk about the strategy. You spend a lot of time with your chairman out in the field at clients. Do you have a specific strategy around working with current clients, whether that's specific to retention or specific to growth? If you could elaborate on how that strategy is similar or different from the strategy you suggest to partners at work. So I'll answer the question about strategy to deepen the relationship with existing clients and what the role that our chairman has in that. I'll start with our approach to obtaining sort of client feedback, if you will. We have three different ways in which we do that and all are valuable. The first is one of the chairman's visit. And I will say, I'd love to tell you that Oric is the only law firm that does this and does this well. This, what I'm about to describe, or some form of this, I think most of our listeners would agree it's a best practice. We believe strongly that the chairman's visit is important, and that's getting to as many of our top clients. And that doesn't necessarily mean the highest revenue producing clients. It's those who are in our three sectors that we are very focused on, tech, energy, and finance. Having that top-to-top conversation that in my view, really, frankly, probably only the chairman can do this in the right way. And I have found that this discussion is generally always welcome from the typically a general counsel and sometimes it's a CEO depending on the size of the company. And that's a conversation that's really about the thank you. It's about what's going on in your business and ours and how we run our business and how we can collectively provide service to the market better. This has been an evolution where clients are very interested and we greatly appreciate that interest. The other piece of the conversation is it's not selling them on additional services in the moment, but it is making sure that they're generally aware. It's an opportunity to plant some seeds. And again, I believe that that is welcome in my experience. The third is, of course, if the client has something that he or she needs to let, it's just as there's something you all need to do better, or you have a, we need to do a course correction, or there's an area for improvement. We're there to hear that, but it is not the same as, and I'll now shift gears to the other category of the more formal client service interview, which can be done and is regularly done by a third party. And I'll say from my own standpoint and Oryx approach is I am sometimes at the table with the third party and sometimes I am not. I believe there are benefits to both and every bit of feedback we get is good. The third area is the less formal client feedback that myself and my colleagues, because we have a market-facing client relations and sales team here, as do many other law firms, and we might come back to that. So we are out in the market, and really our jobs every day is to be conducting this perpetual feedback interview of sorts, if you will, that's a combination of how are we doing and a needs assessment. Just to close on this, Nicole, I think the most critical piece of all of this, you know, it's wonderful that every client I have asked, would you be willing to provide feedback has said yes. 
And when asked as part of that conversation, was this a productive use of your time and should we do it again within six months to a year? I kid you not, the answer is always yes. So there's that. However, if you do not act on the feedback and it does not get to the right people within the organization, you shouldn't have asked. And that is, can be nuanced, it can be challenging, and it can, that's where the opportunity is, of course, is to constantly give that feedback to the team in the right ways. I have a few questions. First, on the chairman's visits, what's the average length of those? Is it 30 minutes? Is it a structured agenda? Are they always done in person? So they're always done in person. They are as structured as we think they need to be. So in my experience, and and again, I'm, I'm just really fortunate, Nicole, that I've been at this for a while. And a good number of the clients that our chairman, Mitch Zuckley, and I go and see, I just have the privilege of already knowing them personally. So I mention that because I am able to say, send a note to the client and say, here's what we're thinking. We have a lunch or we have an hour. We kind of sort of assess how much time they have. And here's what we're thinking about how to use that time. And here's what we're thinking about who will be there. And they will sometimes say, that sounds right. Or I'd like you to be prepared to discuss X, Y, Z. That may mean you want to bring this other person. Occasionally, the client will say, you know, I'd really like my team. So he or she may bring in their three top deputies to meet you and Mitch. That would be really meaningful to me. So basically letting them sort of shape the agenda a little bit. And it's also through that back and forth in prepping for the meeting, I will typically uncover if there's something when I go back in my history of doing this for 21 years now, there have been some surprises and you only want to make that mistake once. So it can be more formal, but I would say the, gosh, this is just my personal style. I would say the less formal, the better. Great to hear that that's been your experience. And, you know, I've got a lot of questions about whether they stay strategic or tactical. I really want to focus in on the point you made. When you ask for feedback, you need to take action on that feedback or it's better, quote unquote, not to ask. Can you give some examples of the types of feedback you've received and then how you've worked with the team at Oric to ensure corrections are made or changes are made? You know, what's, what are some examples? And then how have you actually been able to act on that feedback in a way that, of course, is comfortable for the team at Oric as well? Sure. So I'll share one that is, I think, important for everyone, every lawyer and every business person who supports lawyers. I think this is something we all need to be mindful of. Every client we have has someone they report to. Even if you're this general counsel or CEO, you have responsibility to, in the case of the CEO, the the board of directors. And the reason I mention this is, is the board is in many instances, in my mind, the ultimate client. The reason why I raise this is, although I believe Oric is good at this, I believe we can all get better at the following, is presenting information be it legal advice, business advice, or other counsel, presenting that information to the client, whether they're a junior lawyer or the CEO at the company, in a fashion that they can easily flip to whomever their uh, manager or boss is. And that is something that we all can get better at. So, for example, 
We remind our attorneys after coming back from a series of client meetings where we have been reminded of the importance of communicating with the client in a way that their internal client expects to be communicated with. So that's just a reminder that we don't send memos. We don't send six-page memos. Why? Because they communicate all in PowerPoint because that's what the client is accustomed to. So that would be an example of reminding our attorneys and if they need some coaching and support and training around producing information in a way that is compelling and desirable. And frankly, we don't want our clients having to do work to change the communication. You know, they shouldn't be redrafting documents, for example. So I hope that gives you an, a tangible example of getting feedback and then acting on that feedback. And really, frankly, it's not limited to that particular client. We remind everyone that this is a best practice. I love that example because I can just hear the feedback you're getting from some of the attorneys you present that to. For example, I prefer not to communicate in that format because it's not complete. It doesn't cover all the different guidance. I would imagine that would be some pushback. Is that an example of some pushback you might get? Is that now just quote unquote, a best practice and you don't get that? It's received as a strong reminder. So my experience thus far and forgive the overshare, but I've only been at Oric for about just over a year. Maybe I'm still in the honeymoon phase, but so far, all of the relationship partners have received this information well and warmly. Is every lawyer great at this? No. And that's okay. They weren't trained to be great at. And therefore, I would just say as men and women evolve in their careers, and have more and more, I guess I would just say relationship responsibility, overall responsibility. It's okay if it's not in their their wheelhouse today, but it needs to be. That evolution of the relationship. And I will say it can be a little, I suppose it could be a little uncomfortable for some, but but so far, so far, so good. That's fantastic. You have a team and your team is working, I would assume they're embedded in Either they're aligned to a relationship partner or they're embedded in different practices. If you could comment on this structure, and then I'm going to ask you a question about, you know, some of the best practices that you request of them. Sure. So thanks for asking about structure because we're really proud and I'm really proud to work alongside some remarkably cool and experienced people here at Oric. And with respect to our sales, marketing, and communications function. It is exactly what I just described. There are three departments that work in close concert and collaboration with one another, and they are run by and led by three different people. So I oversee the sales group, which encompasses Mm -hmm. a variety of things, including all of our key client program, all of the sales activity, the alumni program, all of our events and so on and so forth. You can, I won't go too far. It will become very uninteresting quickly. The next piece is um, headed by our global head of marketing handling what I'm going to refer to as the more traditional practice and sector-based elements of the marketing function. And when I say traditional, critically important, just those functions that have been in the law firm longer, I think, than most sales uh, groups. And communications led by our chief communications officer, who really is the steward of the brand, who is the voice of the firm and our chairman, and is really, gosh, with our chairman, sets the tone of who we are in the market. 
So we each are fortunate to have teams and you had a question about the sales function. So we have elected to arrange ourselves aligned with those three sectors that I mentioned, technology, energy infrastructure, and finance. So for us, we have a market-facing salespeople who are in those three areas. And I will say we're sort of heavily loaded up in the tech sector made sense for us so far because we have a lot of activity in that area. We're very proud of being a top global law firm. So we help, as you probably know, in everyone from two women in a cafe with a great idea for a company up to a Fortune 50 technology company. So three of us are market-facing sales executives, myself included. I handle the more of the public company arena. And I have a wonderful colleague and team member who handles what I'll refer to as the mature venture-backed pre-IPO universe up to the small public companies. And that is his focus. And then I'm working backwards here. Um, a colleague runs our total access program, which is, you know, you see this in other law firms, which is wonderful which is a whole piece of the firm, which is dedicated to serving the entrepreneur and being the lawyer for the corporation. And then, of course, connecting those corporations and individuals to capital and funding sources and working that network to the benefit of our clients and other referral sources. So we have a pretty robust approach. And I will say everyone who's in these market-facing roles, myself included, we are out in the field with clients, referral sources, and that's really what we do the majority of the time. And then we bring those messages back from the market, both to hopefully bring opportunities to attorneys and groups of attorneys. And we try to bring that feedback to our colleagues in marketing to inform how it is we talk about what we're great at. So that's kind of where one of the overlaps is, I think, with sales and marketing. Great insight into the model. So Catherine, would I then interpret that as not being a partner-based selling model or are there partners that are out in the field with you when you're out communicating or is it both? So you and your team are out looking for and acquiring new business and then partners are also doing that. You know, how does, how does that work within Oric? So it occurs to me, Nicole, and some people listening in might be saying, salespeople in law firms? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I'll just share what my understanding is of where this profession is in its state of evolution, which is still in its nascent stages. However, fair to say at this point, in my view, a trend. There are at least 20 of the AMLAW 100 law firms that have at least one market-facing sales executive, or they may call them something else, client-facing. And of those 20 or more, some of the law firms have robust, well-developed functions that are just firing on all cylinders and have been in place for more than 10 years. So just to level set, because again, that may not be news to people or that may be surprising information. And I would say it's a trend. And of course, happy to answer any questions about that and who tends to serve in those roles, et cetera. But I'll just go back to your other question, which is that awesome question and so important and a line that we walk every day, which is, gosh, Catherine, it's great that you know so many general counsels. I say, so what? 
I will say a lot of people who do the job that I do, they are lawyers, bankers, consultants, they have accountants, there are lots of interesting backgrounds that people bring to the table. I'm not a lawyer. So to be clear, they absolutely don't hire me. So what we do as a sales force is really just to accelerate the sales activities of the partners and the other lawyers who do get hired. To answer your question, it's the latter. We are on our best day linked up arm in arm with the attorneys in the market doing informal types of networking, socializing, frankly, to shoulder to shoulder with them pitching opportunities in a pretty formal beauty contest, you know, running the full gamut from all the activities in between. Do we independently network? Absolutely. Just because, you you know, we don't have to bill our time. Anything we can do to make better use of the attorney's time is a win for us. But the notion that you can just have an independent actor out there is, you know, that doesn't, you won't last very long. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we hear different things from guests. We hear that there's this very, you know, an embedded business development person in a particular practice that becomes very much part of the practice and is out working on behalf of that practice, sometimes with partners, sometimes independently. You know, obviously there's a lot of trust involved in in those relationships. Something that is near and dear to my heart. I'm a huge fan of qualification and whether it's a formal go, no go, or even more broadly than that, just making sure that there's good use of time on proposals and pitches and that when a firm is going after a piece of business, that there's a high likelihood that they're going to be successful acquiring that business. Do you have a formal process or even an informal process that you use and have used successfully? So you used a phrase that's near and dear to my heart. And you basically hit on, to me, the key of effective sales and relationship development, which is making good use of the client's time or the prospect's time. So I will say, just everyone file that away. That is the number one thing that you should ask yourself is sending this email, this article, this e-alert, asking this person for a meeting, am I making good use of their time? And if the answer is yes, then go for it. If the answer is I'm not sure, then ask. I think the number of times we try to guess and see if we can read the client's mind and hope something sticks, people shouldn't do that. You don't have to. Just ask. Implicit in your question is a really smart strategy, which is to ask yourself what I'll refer to as the gating questions and use the example of the RFP. You receive an RFP. It's let's assume it's from a client or prospect that is right in your wheelhouse from a sector perspective. And yet, I will say we still believe there is some work that we should say no to. Why? If we look at an RFP and we look at the economics of it or what it is they're asking us to do, we might look at it and say, you know what? We are so grateful to be asked and we have a partner who is a fantastic, you know, legal group who's probably better suited to handle this. Or maybe our own, we have an operation, which is a lower cost center in Wheeling, which many people are familiar with. But we are not afraid to look at something and say, this is not our A game. We only want to come with our A game. And there's always that question, and increasingly so, that is driven in large part now by the client, is the economics of it. And can we make it work 
so that they will be happy and really satisfied with what we're doing for them. And we can still keep the lights on. You know, clients don't expect us to do work for free. They understand we're running a business. They just want us to be thoughtful about the work that we say yes to. So to answer your question, I think most, frankly, large firms, but I imagine midsize and smaller ones as well. I think most have asked themselves the gating questions, I would think. Yeah, we're definitely hearing more and more rolls into this next question. A lot of firms are looking at being more creative in their approach to working with clients, whether that's alternative fee arrangements or another option, whether a legal services firm or some other relationship, the more reasonably priced services. Based on your tenure there, definitely your prior experience, how much do you think the change in the economy, the post-2008 world has really led to practices like stronger qualification, practices like having formal business developers and, and people out in the field really assisting the professionals in acquiring business. How much of that do you think is related to what has been a, a change in market conditions? So I believe that the explosion of a different way of doing things that you're seeing out there. And I think we're really on the cusp of it. And there's just so much more to be revealed. It's a very tense and exciting time, I think, to be in the legal services industry. And I mean that broadly, legal and professional services. So I certainly think that the pendulum swung towards the client getting to say what they want and what they need after 2008. And my personal view is it won't swing back. And I don't know who will be mad at me for saying this. Um, they are in a, the best position to say what they need. I will say there's a little bit, if I could just say a quick parenthetical, I think there's a bit of a misnomer when people say, well, the legal industry is flat. So it's not flat. It's the corporations. And again, I'm much more familiar with the large multinational companies. The legal work is going way up. The demands on global compliance, regulatory, global data privacy. I mean, you just stop right there. And then there are plenty of other categories. The responsibility that resides in the Office of General Counsel is just exploding. So the legal work has gone way up. It's who's doing it that's changed, where the legal departments at these very large companies are so sophisticated and have extremely sophisticated and experienced people running them, including talent models within very large companies where they're hiring or even they're bringing in first and second year law students to train them within their corporations and intend to hire them straight out of law school. I mean, the times they are a changing. So I just want to say that it's wrong if we talk about the market being flat. It's not flat at all. It's about who's doing the work. And so to your question, has that impacted what our departments at law firms look like and the professionals that are within those firms? Absolutely. You see more and more of those. And when I say pricing professionals, that does not do these men and women justice. They are brilliant and essential to, I think, any firm. And certainly what we refer to as chief practice officers, so people who are highly sophisticated at our firm, they happen to be attorneys, are really like operations professionals for those practice groups or sectors. And that's a trend and a best practice, I think, that you see across firms. And then I will say these market-facing people and having, I sort of liken it to having sales executives or business development executives within a law firm is smart in that why would you ever 
hire an architect to do dentistry. You wouldn't. That would be dangerous. So why would you expect a top litigator to be great at business development and client relations and how to run that side of the business. That's not a reasonable expectation. There's different training involved, different experience, maybe even a different style. And so that's my sort of philosophy or rationale or that's just my take on the evolution of those professional roles within the market. And if I could just mention one other thing, Nicole, that I think is really important for us to all pay attention to, which is the emergence of, and really thank the CLOCK group, which is the Consortium for Legal Operations Council. I think Corporate Legal Operations Consortium or Council. I should get that right. These people who you probably know and have interacted with are often chief legal operations folks within these very large corporations. And I believe that they are the future. They are the ones that are going to help figure out which type of lawyer or other professional services provider should be doing the job or task that needs to get done. And we law firms, we corporations, you know, whomever you are, I think they are the intersection of this, when I mentioned before that kind of tension and opportunity and really how exciting it is to be in the legal industry. They are sort of, in my mind, at the apex of that or the center of that conversation. And I think we should all participate in it. And it's not easy because they want, you know, it's it's not easy. Well, they want to make changes. And I think that, you know, that can yeah. definitely be... Not welcomed by all, welcomed by many, obviously the client, the buyer, and possibly by those that are really looking for that alternative, that more business oriented legal advice model. I'll put it that way. Absolutely. We covered a lot in our discussion. We talked about professional pricing. We've talked about having professionals that are strong at business development, at marketing, at communications, allowing our professionals, our our lawyers to focus on on their field and, and where they are, have been successful and have developed expertise. Do you have a success story you could share with our listeners that talks about an opportunity where you were able to successfully either retain a client, acquire new business in a current client or acquire a new client that really built off of those things that are what you see in large law firms as the answer to acquiring business in the market. You know, the things that are now, if they're not differentiators, making you a very strong competitor. So that's a great question and a sort of broad and a number of stories are are coming to mind. I guess just the guiding principle I would share before I offer up a story is you use the word differentiator and that really is everything is just knowing as an institution that you should only lead with people who can win. And that's really hard and uncomfortable sometimes as an individual, it's knowing where you fit in that conversation. And sometimes you'll be the person who is leading. Sometimes you will be the person who under uncovers the opportunity for a colleague and that's winning too. And sometimes you are a person who does great legal work and you are critical to the success of your firm and a client and your type of business development is going to reflect your personal interests and how you like to engage. So it really is one size fits one in terms of what I, how I approach an individual and their business development 
plans. I'm going to tell you a story, if I may, because it weaves together some of the themes that we spoke about. And it is grounded in my personal view. And I think one that's shared by our firm's leadership that the most important thing we do every day is ask, how are we doing? (laughs) And I'm actually going to tell you a story that I'm going to take you back in time just a little bit. This is not about Oric, and I'm not going to name the firm because it really doesn't matter. It's the story is instructive and it's going to sound like a sad story in the beginning. And I assure you it has a happy ending. So it goes like this. A large, very large financial institution was a very significant client of the firm. And the firm was notified that they were being fired and struck from all of the preferred provider lists across the major business units of this bank. And the firm said, oh, no, that is work that we really wanted and fought hard to get. What can we do? And a new relationship partner was put in place and I was asked to join him in the endeavor of seeing if we could save this relationship. And so the two of us armed with all of the information that we needed. And by the way, to be clear, there, there, this was a problematic service issue and serious billing error was just a series of mistakes that went unattended and obviously seriously problematic because they were firing them at the time. And what we did was go on a listening tour. And the most significant thing that we did was we went and we owned that the mis- we said what we believed the mistakes were made, what the mistakes were and said, did we get that right? What else would you add? And then we said, this is unacceptable and we apologize. And the most remarkable thing happened. And I did not think this would be, I didn't think this would happen. The then client or, you know, former client says, no time in my career, and these are experienced general counsel Mm -hmm. level people, no time in my career has a lawyer or somebody representing a law firm walked into my office and admitted that a mistake had been made, owned it and apologized. Tell me more. Who are you guys? And not, I can't, so we had conversations of this nature. There were more than 15 people that we spoke to and had similar conversations. Not all of them wanted to hug us when the conversation was over. But I will say that fast forward to the end, not only did we get added back on the list we were on, we were added to lists that we weren't on before and the revenue went up. Now, mind you, this is, you know, three years had passed, but isn't that remarkable? And what does that tell you that the opportunity that exists to simply look someone in the eye and say whatever it is you need to say, it's really quite simple. People think that business development within a law firm is hard. It's not. It's really very simple. Great story. I have to say in working in roles and in complex businesses, We talk about that, that mistakes happen. It's how you handle the mistakes that make the difference. I can recall coaching clients that were making selections of firms and saying the same, you know, you really want to talk with them about how they handle errors. What an amazing experience for your firm, for you and and your relationship executive that you were able to live that experience, right? To apologize on behalf of your firm for for that error and, and talk about correcting it. Right. And, and that leading to additional business. I think that's a great story and one our listeners will absolutely appreciate hearing. Just like the client, I don't, I don't think you hear those stories a lot. Yeah. And people, unfortunately, put their, which is so natural and normal. And I think we do this in 
our personal lives, but also all too often in the professional setting where we put our heads in the sand instead of taking it on directly. The client just sort of goes away and that didn't have to happen. Catherine, have you experienced in your career, in your role, having clients ask your firm, whether it's Oric or prior firms, to have service level agreements and some kind of skin in the game? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the answer is yes. And I think making sure that it's working for both Oric and for the client. I would say, given that we have so many clients that are such large companies, most of them, if not all, require some type of special agreement. I would say more and more they're looking to us, the law firm, to recommend terms. I think law firms make a mistake when we'll say to the client, well, yeah, we'll just tell us what you want and we'll try to get there in terms of the fees or the alternative fee arrangement or whatever. And I think clients get a little irritated by that. So we try not to do that. I would say we do try to be very proactive, creative to the extent extent that's welcomed. But I don't know anyone who can be in the business and not have all manner of of creative agreements. Now, that said, there are also clients that say, just just bill me your rate. (laughs) I mean, there's still people who do that. That's so interesting because we, we've heard a lot of feedback that it's, they want to just bill the hourly rate because that's what they're used to. I did interview Ron Baker, who's tagged as the father of value pricing, and he's all about describing the value that the firm will bring to the client and attaching a price to it. And it is definitely not buying time or paying for time. It's, it's a price tag on an outcome. An interesting way of pricing and one that I think we're seeing more and more in all different size firms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a cool way of phrasing it. You know, there are what I think, I mean, you hear this a lot, I'm sure, but the unbundling of the services and then, and that really goes to value is assigning a value. Once you've unbundled the services that are needed and then you put an appropriate price tag on them, which kind of goes to that earlier conversation we had about who's the right person to do the work. You don't probably want Oric or Crevasse or fill in the blank, excellent law firm attorneys doing all of your relatively routine due diligence, right? Obvious one. Probably not. Just to give an example. So it's really about putting the right value and price on the service. Catherine, it's been an informative interview. I want to thank you. Any last points you'd like to share with our listeners before we say goodbye? You know, people often ask me, what do you think the core characteristics are that you observe in rainmakers? That is a question that I get asked very regularly and have had the privilege to speak on that subject numerous times. And I might leave you with that thought. And it's, it's the idea that I think sometimes people focus on the wrong things, that they think they need to be a great networker and very charming at cocktail parties. And that's nice, but you don't need to be to be very successful. What I've found is that you need to love your job, number one. And number two, people who are very curious and gritty. But the number one is people who mentor others and who genuinely look for ways to be of service to everyone that they come in contact with, those people who are oriented towards the market that way are, in my personal experience, by far the most successful and the most 
joyful and the best leaders and people follow them and want to be around them, clients and colleagues. Fantastic last point. Strong share throughout the entire conversation, Catherine. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Thank you.